of a bitch. What's up, people? How's everybody doing today? Um, full show, jam-packed from beginning to end. There's a clip that went viral of a business owner in Michigan that uh, I really want to show you. He, you know, I thought I had mixed thoughts, but I really don't. I actually think I'm just on his side. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead with that in just a second. Joe Biden addressed the nation about the economic impact of COVID, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that he said. We also have Trump did a rally in Georgia for David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. I called her Loeffler, but apparently it's Leffler. Um, and the clips are just, there's so many great clips that say so much. One of them, Trump accidentally exposes the whole mantra of the modern conservative movement. It's really something special uh, and hilarious. And then later on in the show, Nancy Pelosi um, absolutely face plants in glorious fashion and messes up the stimulus negotiations as predicted, as predicted. Um, and then Joe Biden diving headfirst into immense corruption. He's accepting money for his um, inauguration. And wait until you hear the specifics of that. The good news is what happened on the marijuana front with the House of Representatives. We'll get to that as well. The funny news is the anti-gay politician who basically is super duper duper gay. Uh, we'll talk about all that and more. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And um, we are going to do that with the viral clip of the business owner. Here we go. There's a clip that went viral of a business owner in Michigan ripping the government for their failure on COVID and the economic fallout. So this led to a very mixed reaction online. Uh, I want to show you the clip. It's from some, you know, local news outlet. So let's watch and then we'll talk about it. Stand up, America. Give us the money to shut this thing down and calm this virus. 
but don't take it out on select field. Is there anything else you want to add, sir? That's it, brother. All right. I'm glad you listened to me. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, I'm really excited to say Michigan just listen to your okay. listening to you right now. All right, I'm, good. I'm glad to hear that, okay? okay. I'm really a good guy. Okay. I've been married 38 years. i got a wife, three kids. i got four great grades. Let me tell you something. i got a good life, and I've worked hard for it. I'm not giving up easily. I'm not going down alone. They want me to go down and be quiet. They never want to hear from me again. I'm not going to put up with it. Gotcha. It's time to rise up. Gotcha. It's time to rise up. Shut it all down, but don't shut any of us down. That's the only way to get control of a virus. You know what's really interesting about this clip and what I love about this clip? It's that we actually don't know. We have no idea what his politics are in terms of partisan alliance. We have no idea. We don't know if he leans left. We don't know if he leans right. We don't know if he's a big-time Democrat or a big-time Republican. Um, But what we do know is, on the substance of what he's saying there, he's absolutely correct. And, you know, some of the details or the specifics might be off, but the gist of what he's saying is, is totally true. So he says that there's been trillions of dollars in stimulus, and they gave it to special interests and campaign donors. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There was this multiplier effect where, you know, the, the bill through Congress was actually probably around a trillion. There was this multiplier effect where the Fed jumps in as well, and you really had the discretion of the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, as to determine where a lot of the money went. And naturally, that guy's, you know, a giant corrupt prick. He's a Goldman Sachs lackey. Um, He should have been prosecuted by Kamala Harris when she was Attorney General of California because he was illegally foreclosing on people in California during the height of the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, kicking grandmas and grandpas out on the street early. Um, But she didn't prosecute him, and she didn't prosecute him because she was taking campaign contributions from him. So, but what this guy is accurately pointing out is, wait a second, you guys rushed in to help after or during COVID and during the economic downturn. But if you look at the specifics of where that money went, regular people were completely abandoned. And he's accurately pointing out that he was abandoned. Um, he says, you know, we had enough money in this thing to give every family $20,000. And then you absolutely would have had people able to shut down. You could shut down 80% of the economy and really keep only the very essential businesses open. And people would have weathered the storm. And they definitely would have stayed home in that scenario. But they didn't do that. And this gets to a point that, you know, we've seen this play out throughout history. Another, again, to bring it up again, a great example is the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. The bailouts are always given to the people who make their campaign contributions. So that it's top-down bailouts. It's top-down bailouts. In other words, it's not bottom-up. It's not like let's bail out the people so that they could stay in their homes, even though, you know, they took on a risky loan and it was like an, an, a, a ballooning rate, adjustable rate mortgage that skyrocketed at a certain point. And you could say, hey, that was irresponsible to take out. But they're also not experts in finance. And really, the reason why they were able to take that loan out is because of the lack standards, lack of regulation, and the fact that, you know, the people who were selling the mortgage were playing hot potato with these toxic assets and they were getting their payday and that's all that mattered to them. So the bailout was never bottom-up. It never is bottom-up. The bailout's always top-down, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that is the elites can skim off the top, and sometimes it goes significantly further than that. I mean, a great example is what's been happening with the airlines. I think it was Boeing that they took, like, billions of dollars, and then they fired tens of thousands of people. Like, hold on. I thought the idea was if we're going to bail you out, 
Like thing number one on the list is we're bailing you out to make sure that you don't fire these people, but they fired everybody anyway. So he's right. He's right in pointing out how corrupt the system is, how broken the system is. And then he also says, listen, either shut everything down or shut nothing down, basically. And that sentiment kind of makes sense because what we're seeing now, especially in California, there's been a lot of stories like this coming out recently. You have these small businesses that are being shut down. They can't afford to shut down. And then you have like big businesses that are able to stay open. And there was one example on social media, this video of a small business owner, this woman was crying, basically saying, they're shutting me down and we're outside. We're social distancing for my restaurant. And then they set up something right next door where it's a big business and they're allowed to stay open and they're in the same damn parking lot. It's the exact same thing, the exact same social distancing, the exact same parking lot. Why is the big business allowed to be open, but I'm not allowed to be open? Because they have these loopholes, and the loopholes are, of course, for the people who donate to the politicians. And it's really gross when you see the way that this unfolds. I was talking about this the other day, but we've really hit a place where we're doing the worst of all worlds. So there's a, there's a, a left way to respond to COVID, and there's like a, you know, a more right-leaning way to respond to COVID. The left-leaning way is shut down as much as humanly possible and pay everybody to stay home. You could do it in the form of universal basic income, uh, you know, recurring stimulus checks, basically, or you could do a wage replacement scheme like a lot of other developed countries have done, where they pay anywhere from 70% to 100% of people's wages. That's like the left approach. Lockdown, pay everybody to stay home. Then you have a more right-leaning approach, which is basically the Japan approach, which is limited economic shutdowns, but most stuff stays open, but you really kind of strictly enforce universal masks and, and social distancing. And in a scenario like that, you know, perhaps you get more cases, but it could be somewhat manageable because the masks are universal and you still have a degree of like economic freedom in that context, right? Those are really the ways you can, you can approach this thing. What we did is just an utter mess. We did shutdowns or like partial shutdowns. And then we only paid people, gave people one stimulus check for months and that's not nearly enough. Um, and then, you know, the response varies state to state and sometimes even like locality to locality or city to city. And the, the shutdowns are total half measures with giant loopholes for campaign contributors and things of that nature. And it's like, so you get the restriction of the economic freedom by shutting down without the benefits of really curtailing the virus because they're so half-assed. So our response is basically as dumb as humanly possible. You had to do one of the two approaches and commit to it. Either limited shutdowns, you could kind of keep most things open, but universal masks can restrict about it, or shut down and you know, replace everybody's wages. We didn't do either one of those things. We did this weird middle path, which means we have an exploding virus and restrictions on freedom. And this guy recognizes that. I think most Americans recognize that. And it's a mess. And so one of the giant downsides that we're seeing now is um, about 60%, I believe the number was 60%, it was either of restaurants or small businesses, I think it was restaurants, 60% of them um, are shutting down permanently now, permanently. I mean, that's just a total remaking of the economy. And now monopoly power is going to be stronger than ever. 
and you're going to have even more wealth concentration in the hands of a few people, a few billionaires, and a few corporations. And so the, the effects of this are disastrous. And really, the CARES Act was, it was just a, an example of Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, which is like, take a crisis and exploit it towards their nefarious ends, which is more wealth concentration and you know, more money and power for the haves, and you, and you take away from the have-nots. So this is a disaster. I can see why this went viral. And um, I don't know if there's a light at the end of this tunnel, because, you know, what's, what's Biden going to do when he comes in? Do I think that if the Democrats were in control, we would have fewer virus deaths? I do. I do. Because they're, at the very least, they accept the tenets of science, you know, whereas Trump was just that he's all gut and instinct, and he tries to override scientists, and he's just an idiot, right? He's dumb. That's obvious. So do I think the Democrats would have done better? Yes. How much better? I don't know. I still think we'd have a very, very high death rate compared to the rest of the, of the world. Um, I, I mean, more deaths compared to the rest of the world. And he's already sort of hinted that he doesn't think he has the authority to do certain things that would be necessary, like if we're going to be largely open mandate masks. He thinks I have to delegate that to the states. I don't have the power to mandate it at the federal level. That's probably debatable legally, but I don't know how much different it's going to be. I don't know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but a lot of the damage is already done. And so now we're seeing the cases are now worse than ever too. And the deaths are now worse than ever too. You have basically a 9-11 of deaths every single day. And on top of that, we're effectively in a depression and the only thing that the morons in power can do is say the stonks are going up. So isn't that wonderful? So this clip went viral because it resonated. And a lot of people are getting shafted. They're getting screwed. Economically, health-wise, um, freedom-wise, again, it's the worst of all world's response. And people are on to the fact that this is a giant scam. Um, God, it breaks my heart now because I'm thinking about Bernie Sanders and how he wasn't able to break through. I mean, yes, he got screwed at the last minute with the Democratic machine behind the scenes, stabbing him in the back with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropping out, endorsing Biden at the last minute, or else he would have won. All that's true. But, you know, God, we had a, a unique situation here where he really could have argued correctly, I'm the only one that wants to address all these problems at the root. I'm the only one. You know, oh, would you look at that? We're having a pandemic, and I'm the candidate who's for giving everybody health care, who's for catching up to the rest of the developed world on that front. This is a no-brainer. Obviously, you support me and my candidacy. I'm the only one who wants to fix these problems in any serious way. But no, he wasn't able to break through. Um, anyway, I feel for this guy. I feel for all the small business owners. I feel for everybody affected by COVID. And... Um, Something has to change. A lot has to change. At the very least, we need universal masks and a hell of a lot more stimulus for people. But I don't even know if we're going to get that. Okay, now we're going to go to Joe Biden. He addressed the nation on the impact of COVID. Joe Biden addressed the nation about the economic impact of COVID. Uh, here's some of what he said. Well, days ago, 
I spoke with school school crossing guard, a server, a restaurant owner, and a stagehand. Good people, honorable people, decent, hardworking Americans from across the country. It reminded me of my dad who lost his job in Scranton and eventually moved their family to Delaware, just outside of Wilmington, a place called Claymont. He used to say, you've heard me say it before, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I expect them at least to understand my problems. The folks I'm talking about, the folks out there aren't looking for a handout. They just need help. They're in trouble through no fault of their own. Nothing they did caused them to have hours cut or lose their job or drop out of the market. What they need, they need us to understand. We're in a crisis. We need to come together as a nation. Counterpoint, people do want a handout. They do need a handout. And they're right to want a handout and need a handout. There's no shame in that. Listen, see, this is what drives me crazy about this. He's completely framing this in a conservative way. This is, a, you know, a right-wing framing of the conversation. So I want to remind you, I want to give you the quote one more time. And and this is the part, by the way, that he, in the tweet that had this video, the part that he quoted and put the text was this. Uh, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I expect it to understand my problems. Folks out there aren't looking for a handout. They just need help. They're in trouble through no fault of their own, and they need us to understand understanding ain't going to pay the bills. I saw a hilarious thing on Twitter. Somebody said, Joe Biden's the kind of guy when he sees a when he sees a car crash happen in front of him, he pulls over, rolls up his sleeves, runs over at 50 miles an hour, and then he says, I understand. What? Again, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I expect them to understand my problems. You want the government to see somebody, for example, who's going bankrupt for medical bills, and they walk up and say, I'm from the government, and I want, I want you to understand, I get this. I know it really, really, really hurts. And I understand, and I sympathize with you. I don't care about your damn sympathy. I don't care about it at all. I need tangible, real-world, material help. And the Republicans are, are the type to be, walk up to you and be like, yeah, I don't care. I simply don't care the fact that you're going to go bankrupt for medical bills. Doesn't bother me at all. Won't miss a wink of sleep. Joe is literally saying, yeah, the Democrats are the type to say, I understand. My heart bleeds for you. This is really difficult. Anyway, I'm going to go grab a sandwich now. Which is kind of like, well, if you really cared, then you would help fix it, right? Like, that would be the logical response. Oh, you're going to go bankrupt because of medical bills? Well, that's unacceptable. Here. Here's a subsidy. Here's some money. But oh, he's saying, like, that's not what he's for. I, it drives me crazy. It really does drive me crazy. Because, guys, you pay taxes to the government. You pay taxes. So to want basic services back is, makes all the sense in the world. You know, and recently, by the way, Ed Markey sort of flipped the JFK quote, think not what your country can do for you, 
think what you, but what you can do for your country, something along those lines. Um, and he was like, he basically said what I just said, which is like, well, actually, no, we pay taxes to our government. So, of course, you should get basic services in response. If you pay taxes, somebody breaks into your house, you call the cops. Should the cops not show up? Of course they should show up. Of course. That's part and parcel of you paying taxes, basic services. You want the roads to, to function and not have potholes absolutely everywhere. You want the police to be there. You want the fire department to be there if your house catches fire. Why is it so crazy to add health care to that list? That should be at the top of the list. Why is it so crazy to think that, you know, to think about stimulus during uh, an economic depression and a pandemic? That should be like the first thing that they're willing to do. Why is it that most other developed countries had one version or another of a wage replacement scheme? You know, depending on the country, it's anywhere from 70% to 100% of wages were paid out as the economy was shut down. We shut down the economy and had a one-time payment of $1,200 that's supposed to last for months. No, the government is failing miserably. And they're failing because they're not doing those material, real-world things that help people tangibly. There's no shame in wanting tangible help in a situation like this. If anything, it's not even really help. It's what, what is earned. It's what's deserved. Or else, why the hell are we paying taxes? And see, that's the thing. In the conception of how it works now, what we're really paying taxes for is endless war. We're feeding the military-industrial complex and bombing eight different countries, and we have 900 military bases around the world. That's what we're paying taxes for. We're paying taxes to give billions of dollars in subsidies to fossil fuel companies. That's what we're doing. We're repeatedly bailing out the people at the top, bailing out Wall Street. That's what it is. That, that's what our money's going towards. So now we turn around and say, whoa, this is crazy. Our money should go back to us in ways that tangibly help us, especially in times of deep need. And what does Joe Biden say? He splits the difference between the far-right callousness of, like, I don't even care what you're going through, and the, the correct left position of, like, of course you should be helped. He's like, no, no, no. What if, what if I understand your problems, but I don't help solve them? I just, my job is to just understand them. He's like a caricature of third-way politics. He's like a parody of neoliberalism. This is what it is. I don't. Honestly, I'd rather have somebody not even understand my problem, but just materially help fix it. Like, I don't even care if you sympathize with me if I'm about to go bankrupt for medical bills. All I care is that you help me not go bankrupt for medical bills. So you can say, you know what? Go fuck yourself. I hate you personally. You're a piece of shit. But here's $20,000 because that's what the medical bills cost, and we're not going to let you go bankrupt for it. But I just want you to know I think you're a giant piece of shit. I'd be like, okay, you can think I'm a piece of shit if you want. I shouldn't go bankrupt for medical bills, and now I'm not going bankrupt for medical bills because of your help. So thank you. I don't even mind that you think I'm a piece of shit. He's doing the polar opposite. I feel so bad. This is really bad. I understand your problems. I understand them. And I'm not going to do Dickie McGee's acts about them. It's a joke, man. It's a joke. They've let the far right define the terms for the longest time. Like, post-Reagan, every single president, to one extent or another, believed in that philosophy. That, you know, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. No, that era of politics needs to die. That's not the only argument. Not everybody agrees to that as a default setting. You shouldn't 
You shouldn't at all. You know, I'm much more of the FDR uh, philosophy and ideology, and I know most of my audience is as well. The idea that, of course, the government is there, if you're going to pay taxes, the government is there to take care of the basics and take the basics off the table. Now, is there reasonable, reasonable debate as to what constitute, quote unquote, the basics? Of course. And that's where we have the reasonable disagreements and discussions. You know, you might think something's a basic and I don't. Okay, well, let's hash that out. But that general idea of like, no, the government, of course, can be a force for good. Of course, the government can be a force for good. For fuck's sake, we massively reduced senior citizen poverty. How? Through Social Security. That's a giant success story. And it's the government. And what we're talking about in the wake of this pandemic and this economic downturn is basically Social Security for all, also known as universal basic income. But this guy's not on board with that. This guy's on board with, I understand what you're going through. is very, very difficult. And I'm not going to do Dickie McGee's acts about it. Well, thank you. Thank you for your concern, which results in no material change. It's embarrassing, man. It really is. But anyway, this is Joe Biden, and this is what you can expect from him. And he's got an administration full of corporatists. As, you know, we're going to discuss a lot more on this later. I'll give you some specifics. New people that are going to be in his cabinet, and, and it's not good. Um, but expect a lot more of this. It's going to frustrate you to no end. Okay, next. Donald Trump. President Trump did a rally in Georgia for David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. These are the two Republicans who are, of course, in the, the runoff election in Georgia. So he gave us a moment here that's honestly too good to be true, because he accidentally summed up the modern conservative movement. Just go out, just go out. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, we want you to fix the system. We're going to fix the system. But the system will be fixed when these people get in. They'll get in and we'll fix the system. Because we're all, we're all victims. Everybody here, all these thousands of people here tonight, they're all victims, every one of you. completely and utterly embracing the victim mentality. Now, anybody who's been involved in politics for more than a year knows that this is a a recurring theme that the right often accuses the left of. That, you know, your problem is that you don't own the idea that you're an individual and you can overcome and hard work can get you from point A to point B, you stupid lefties always embrace the idea that you're victims. And you'll have to split everybody up into different groups, whether it's gender groups, race groups, what have you, and define certain people as the oppressor and the oppressed, and define entire groups as victims, disregarding individuality, disregarding evidence to the contrary. This is a a right-wing narrative against the left, and it's one of the things that has helped the right gain traction, particularly online, over the course of the past maybe five to ten years. And then Donald Trump just comes out and says it. I mean, listen, psychological projection is a real thing, and you see it all the time in politics. And he's, he's letting the mask slip here. 
he deeply believes in this victim narrative, this victim mentality. And there's a giant contingent of the right that wholeheartedly embraces this idea. Even though they accuse the left of playing the victim all the time, they cannot wait to play the victim. Whenever they can, for any reason whatsoever, they'll grasp on to nothing at all. So just some examples. Remember the war on Christmas? Christmas is so popular that I remember reading this years ago. It's only like 70 to 75% of the country, um, you know, describes themselves as Christian. But it's over 90% of the country that celebrates Christmas. So not only is there not a war on Christmas, all Christians in this country, by and large, celebrate it. And then you have even people who are not Christians celebrate it. Over 90% of the country celebrates Christmas. There's so not a war on Christmas, to steal a joke from Jon Stewart, that it's eating other holidays. Have you ever gone to the store before Thanksgiving even happens and you see some Christmas decorations up? I've seen that. Well, that we're, not even, we're already going to start celebrating Christmas and putting up the decorations before we even have Thanksgiving? I mean, that's, like, that's mind-boggling to me. I think that makes no sense. I think that's crazy. So... Obviously, there's no war on Christmas. The idea that there's a war on Christmas is ridiculous. Why? Because every now and then, somebody says, happy holidays, or says, hey, maybe to be more inclusive, you want to say happy holidays, to look out for that, you know, 5%, 10% of the population that's not necessarily, uh, you know, celebrating Christmas. That's a war on Christmas? That just seems like common courtesy. And who really cares whether you say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays? I couldn't care either way. It's just stupid words. Like, it's whatever. But they grasp onto that to play the victim to say, like, traditional values are under attack. You're not accepted as you are in this country anymore if you're a traditional conservative. Um, the new one is actually Charlie Kirk was saying there's a left-wing war on Thanksgiving. We covered that story. And I think his argument was something along the lines of giving is a joyous holiday because you're giving thanks for stuff, and the left doesn't want people giving thanks for stuff because if they're giving thanks, then they're happy, and we need people upset so that they'll do the revolution. This is an argument he's making. How long have I been involved in, in left-wing politics, to one extent or another? The idea that me and other, like, lefty hosts are having conversations behind the scenes, and we're like, obviously we've got to stop the scourge of Thanksgiving because it's getting in the way of our political ends. Beyond ridiculous, beyond ridiculous. Another example of, like, we're victims is this anti-mask fervor in the country. The idea that having a mask mandate, being told to wear a mask is some sort of evil, tyrannical, dictatorial move, it's like I really file that almost under the same category as wearing seatbelts, you know? And is, is there like some, some movement? Maybe there is. Who knows? Of like the idea that there's laws in favor of wearing seatbelts, it's total overreach of government authority, and this is like a tyrant and a dictator, and this is fascism, and I mean, maybe some people think that, but obviously most people say, I look at that as like a basic safety regulation, something that has tremendous positive upsides with really not that much restriction on your freedom. Mask is like that, except just so much more necessary immediately, right? Because we've seen the studies. You could save hundreds of thousands of lives if everybody wore masks. But there are people who act like, no, this is tyrannical. And so that, there they play the victim as well. I have a right 
to be insanely reckless and put everybody else in danger and take action that will lead to hundreds of thousands of more people dying. They're playing the victim in that situation. In my mind, I think the victims are the people who are dying from COVID. Call me crazy. Call me crazy. I think those are the victims. The people who are getting COVID, I think those are the victims. But this is that new conservative mantra, man. And a lot of it also just has to do with the culture war in general. You know, they are so knee-deep in that culture war that Donald Trump can behind the scenes, actually not even so much behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, he passes giant tax cuts for the rich and corporations. That's what Trump did. That's what Trump did. 83% of the benefits of that tax bill went to the top 1%. He slashed the corporate tax rate. He deregulated Wall Street. He destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That bureau looks out for average working Americans more than any other part of the government, arguably. And he destroyed that part of the government. That's what he's doing as he throws red meat to the base on the issues of the culture war. He's distracting you with the stupid culture war. You know, you're, you're arguing over gender pronouns as Wall Street is hosing you and screwing you. So it's this victim mentality that really makes the tribalism peak and makes the, the, the far right feel like closer together in this existential battle. And, um, you know, it works, man. It works. Playing the victim, whether it's on the right or on the left, powerful thing that lands with a lot of people. But it also happens to be, you know, from an outsider perspective, from a more objective perspective, you look silly. Like, it, it looks really dumb. So are there instances where people are genuinely victims? Of course, of course that's true. You know, the world's a complex place. Plenty of examples of that. But is Trump touching on something real here in terms of his movement and how victimized they are? No. I mean, I'll agree with Trump that, like, the media hates him and they're addicted to him in many instances, sometimes legitimately, but sometimes not. Sometimes they attack him on all the wrong things, and it's ridiculous, right? So I'll give him that, but... You're the most powerful person in the world, literally. You're the commander-in-chief of the world's most powerful army, the most powerful army in human history. Spare me this nonsense about, oh, woe is me and woe is you, conservatives, who have basically gotten everything on your agenda, almost everything, especially all these court appointments, these judge appointments. I mean, you guys are dominant. You're dominant. But... They, uh, they like to get together and, and play victim and cry victim and further entrench themselves in their own silly ideology. And this is Trump doing what only Trump knows how to do. There's no other right-wing figure who's going to compete with this. If this guy runs in 2024, he's definitely going to win that primary in 2024. So there you have it. It's the far right embracing the same kind of narrative that they say they hate when leftists embrace it. Okay. Now I want to give you one more from the rally. One of the creepier parts of Trump's Georgia rally is that he's acting Like, he didn't lose the election. He's pretending like he won it. Or or that it's just, like, still up in the air. 
it's almost like he like he's acting like the election didn't even happen yet. It's really really strange. So here's the end of his rally. Then I want to respond to how brazen certain aspects of this are. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. And together with the incredible people of Georgia, we have made America powerful again. They've done it. We have made America wealthy again. We have made America strong again. We have made America proud again. We have made America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you, Georgia. Get out and vote. Get out and vote. My dude, you lost. You lost, and it wasn't even that close. Biden got millions and millions and millions more votes than you. Even if I'm being kind and I say every single voter fraud claim that you're making, I'm just going to assume it's true. Biden still wins in that scenario. What are you not getting? He won by millions of votes in the popular vote. In the Electoral College, it's 306 Electoral College votes, which is about what Trump had over Hillary, and he called it a landslide when he did it. What? It's, it's really strange to watch him go out there and just act like the election didn't happen, act like it's still before the election. He's in campaign mode for, like, himself. Meanwhile, this is supposed to be about, um, you know, the two Republicans running in Georgia, Purdue and Leffler. By the way, they, somebody tallied it. Apparently they spoke for like two minutes or so at the rally. So it was all, it was wall to wall Trump. And the things he's saying there, I mean, he said we made America wealthy again. Really? What was that number? Either it was like 60% of small businesses or 60% of restaurants are going to permanently go out of business now as a result of COVID. 28 million people are on the brink of homelessness. We're really going to have a foreclosure and eviction crisis, the likes of which we've never seen before as soon as some of the COVID protections expire. We're in a really, 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 really bad place. He says, we made America strong again. What does that mean? Does he mean like, oh, I just threw a lot more money that doesn't need to go to the military. I threw it at the military. It kept increasing the military budget as our infrastructure falls apart. Is that what he means? Made America strong again? Or is it like, we're strong because we illegally assassinated Iranian commanders and almost sparked World War III in the process? Is that, you know, is that you being strong? He said we made America proud again. Really? I mean, again, if you look at polls worldwide, regardless of what you think of Trump or Obama personally or your own opinion on them, in the eyes of the world, Trump is embarrassing. He's embarrassing. He is whereas people more liked Obama. Again, I got plenty of criticisms of Obama, and we can go through them in detail, but in terms of the perception of the world, that's not debatable, how he was perceived versus how Trump is perceived. So made America proud again, made the the people proud. Trump, historically, had one of the lowest approval ratings consistently among U.S. presidents. Does that seem like America is, is proud? But the worst part, the worst part, he said, we made America safe again. 
almost every single day, we're having a 9-11 in terms of deaths from COVID. Almost every single day, it's like we're having a 9-11. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. Just imagine for a second, that is how people were dying. Every single day, there were terror attacks where about 2,500 people were killed. Think about the reaction in that scenario. Now, by the way, we would definitely react in a, in a bad way, in the wrong way. We would do more torture and invade more countries and, and totally shred the Constitution in every conceivable way. So that wouldn't be positive. But my point is, the reaction from the federal government in response to virus deaths, it's nearly non-existent. There's no real sense of urgency. Now the idea is, well, we got the vaccines, so the vaccines are coming, so it's almost like hang on until the vaccines are here. But you've got to worry about distribution, right? So how long will it take to get the vaccine to 70%, 80% of the population? That's going to take a while. Let's just assume it takes another six months. Six months of 2,500 people dying every single day? A 9-11 every single day for six months? And he's out there in rallies saying, we made America safe again. People have never been less safe, Donald. They've never been less safe. And even if you interpret that as like, oh, we made America safe because there was the riots, and now there aren't as many riots right now. Understand that, again, the poll showed people viewed Joe Biden as more of the law and order candidate. You want to know why? Because Trump, how did he respond? He threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy U.S. soldiers on our streets. And he gassed peaceful protesters and did a photo op while holding a Bible. You know what people thought when they looked at that? They said, oh, my God, this guy is adding to the chaos. He's adding to the mayhem. There's going to be more destruction, more rioting, more looting as a result of what he's doing. He's pouring fuel on the fire. This is not the law and order candidate. So he's not keeping anybody safe in terms of his reaction to the riots. And he's not keeping anybody safe in terms of COVID. He won't even do a national mask mandate. He won't even do a national mask mandate. That would save hundreds of thousands of lives. But he has the nerve to say we made America safe again. You didn't make anything safe. Buys Joe Biden with every fiber of my being. But having said that, I still can't wait for this guy to be out of office. Because this, like, he really is the ultimate postmodern president. And what I mean by that is he creates his own reality and he pushes it relentlessly. The actual reality be damned. He creates his own reality and he pushes it relentlessly. Truth is irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. We made America safe again as a 9-11 is happening every single day because of virus deaths. Every single day. Won't even take basic steps like a national mask mandate. Won't even do that. I'm not even sure he actually invoked the Defense Production Act. He threatened it and he said that he was going to do it. I'm not even sure he did it. I mean, honestly, what you should be doing is using that and mass producing the same drugs that he got when he had COVID. That Regeneron, you know, antibody treatment. That should be being made in, you know, record numbers at the moment. Treat it like a World War II level catastrophe because it kind of is in terms of the the death count. You know how they swat that aside? They go, yeah, but it's mostly old people and people with comorbidities. As if that doesn't count. Do you have a grandma? Do you have a grandpa? Do you have somebody who you care about who has, you know, health issues? Plenty of people have chronic health issues. Does that make you, like, love them less? Are they less as people as a result of that? But this is the arguments they make. Like, well, that's old people and people with comorbidities. But he says he made America safe again. 
It's the exact opposite. The fever needs to break and the spell shouldn't work anymore on his base because it's getting to levels of, of absurdity that nobody ever thought was possible, but here we are. Okay, next, let's let me move on now to um, where the Dems fucked up in the last election. This is a great tweet from Shoykat Chakrabarti. So we'll cover this one, then we'll take a break, and then I'll come back and still have a lot of amazing things for you. Not even halfway done with the show yet. Okay, here we go. So there's been a lot of chatter about the election that just happened and where everybody went wrong, where the Republicans went wrong, where the Democrats went wrong, what the respective sides did right. Um, In the case of the Democrats, it's really interesting because, you know, Joe Biden won. But down ballot, the Democrats performed miserably. Now, of course, the people who are mostly responsible for that are Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They're the, the leadership of the Democratic Party. Nobody likes Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Their approval rating always hovers around like 30%, which is less popular than Donald Trump, who's also in the spotlight all the time, which says quite a bit, doesn't it? Um, and listen, the strategy, by and large, from Biden and among others, is that I'm not Trump. I'm not Trump. Um, Let's go back to normal. That was the basic argument. Now, in the case of Biden, it happened to work, probably because of COVID and the economic downturn. I think without COVID, Trump probably would have won, to be honest. Um, But it didn't work down ballot. And one of the reasons it didn't work down ballot is because Democrats have been crystal clear to argue that no, there are good Republicans and then there's Trump. And Trump is bad, but everybody, all the other Republicans or a lot of the other Republicans are good Republicans. And so, like you saw the fruits of that argument and, and the results, we saw them in real time. Because then people were like, okay, if Trump's the bad one and you're telling me Trump's the bad one and the other Republicans are okay, then I guess we'll vote for the other Republicans. And a lot of Americans did exactly that, where down ballot, Democrats got crushed. There was like a 75% chance of them, you know, taking over the Senate. And they're either not, they're very likely not going to, but if they do, it'll be barely. And Kamala Harris will have to break the ties by voting in the Senate. You know, it's a mess. So instead of doing that introspection and that autopsy, what are they doing? They're deflecting, they're obfuscating, they're acting like they somehow had crushing victories, even though they didn't, they underperformed massively. Even Biden underperformed, even though he won comfortably, he still underperformed from what the polls were saying, should have been like 351 electoral votes. Um, but let me show you this, because this blew my mind. This is from Shoykat Chakrabarti. Uh, Shoykat was actually one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats. And um, he makes a great point. He said, I knew from anecdotal evidence that down-ballot Dems tended to not focus on an economic message in 2020, but I didn't realize that so many of them didn't talk about it even once. 
This is so baffling in the middle of an economic depression. What were they possibly thinking? And so you see here, of the 23,000 Facebook ads, Sarah Gideon ran this cycle. Zero included written copy with the words jobs or economy. In North Carolina, Cunningham used the word economy zero times in Facebook ad copy in the month leading up to the election, while running over 700 direct donate ads in state, despite having a robust national fundraising apparatus. Um, As of 1120, incumbent Democratic Governor Roy Cooper got 264,829 more votes than Cunningham. A lot of the Democrats who got their clocks cleaned didn't even run on the bread and butter issues. So they're basically doing the worst thing you could possibly do in a political campaign. It's the worst thing. It's the worst thing. Let me not talk about any of the issues that affect you directly as a human being and as an American citizen. This is the result of that. I have to tell you guys, Democratic staffers and the consultant class, they might be the worst at their profession than anybody else in any other profession. They are professionally wrong. All they do is come in and give Democrats terrible advice. They truly believe, they truly believe that if you run on stuff like Medicare for all, that's unpopular and that's going to hurt you. Just so we're clear, every single Democrat who was for Medicare for all won re-election. Not just in overwhelmingly Democratic districts, also in swing districts, also in districts that are Republican plus six. Democratic supporters of Medicare for all swept. They won every single race. But the Democratic consultants, they'll tell the corporate Democrats, no, no, that stuff is toxic. You have to avoid it. You have to stay away from it. That's going to hurt you. They truly believe it's going to hurt you if you go out there and tell the people, tell your constituents when you're campaigning, I want to give you health care. We have a pandemic. 15 million people lost their health care just since the start of this pandemic. I want to make sure all you are covered. I don't want anybody to go bankrupt from having to pay medical bills. I don't want you to have to worry about that. I want that off the table. They would say, no, no, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to talk about jobs. It's a bad idea to talk about the economy. It's a bad idea to talk about wages. You could, by the way, in the the runoff election in Georgia, you could win on the issue of stimulus checks alone. If the Democrats were to say, in a united front, they say, if we win, Americans are getting more stimulus. You're getting another check in the mail if we win. If we win, you're going to get universal basic income. We're going to make sure we take care of you during this pandemic because this is no fault of your own and you deserve that $1,200 check every single month. If Democrats ran on that alone, they'd win. If Democrats ran on pick any issue involving the economy, just raising the minimum wage. If, you, if we win in Georgia, the minimum wage is being increased because it already passed the House. We'll make sure it passes the Senate and Joe Biden will sign it. Make it about the minimum wage. Make it about any specific issue that helps regular people, and you'll win. Instead, as you can see here, 23,000 Facebook ads Sarah Gideon ran. None of them, none of them mentioned jobs or the economy. Guys, politics is not rocket science. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you like this or don't like it. That's irrelevant. But it is objectively true that if you go to where people are, they like you. If you reflect their values back at them, they like you. 
oh, I agree with that guy. That guy agrees with me. That guy's going to represent me. Okay, I'll vote for that person. That's it. Democratic consultant class overthinks everything. And I do think most of it is because they're just not that bright. Some of it is also because they're corrupt and they have to please their donors. And so you can't please your donors and push for like higher wages because that would mean corporations have to pay higher wages. So it's a mix of like they're corrupt. But also I do think they're stupid and I do think they really convince themselves like, you know, Medicare for all can't go in that direction because that's unpopular, even though 70 percent of the country is in favor of it. 70 percent of the country, probably over 85 percent of Democrats on one poll was 51 percent of Republicans. They've convinced themselves that these really, really popular positions are actually unpopular. Free college, for example. They've convinced themselves that this is like a bad idea, bad politics. We always fight these battles on, on right-wing grounds. And you wonder how they end up winning. They'll fearmonger and they'll scare people about the left. They'll never run on a positive agenda because their agenda is terrible, people on the right. So they'll fearmonger about people on the left, and the left just doesn't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to, they don't know how to act. As a general rule, Democratic campaigns are platitude, cliche, Trump bad. That's it. Platitude, cliche, Trump bad. Shocking, shocker, that didn't work out too well. Susan Collins was, was supposed to lose for sure. She didn't. She didn't. Because the Democrats don't believe in anything. So anyway, this is you know, segment number 9,312 that I've done in my life screaming at the Democrats, focus on the basics, the bread and butter issues, the economy, jobs, wages, health care. That's how you win. It's the economic populism, stupid. There's a reason why every single Medicare for All supporter won re-election. There's a reason for that. Again, not rocket science. I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm just a regular guy with a microphone in front of me. I'm as regular schmegular as it gets. But even I understand this. And also, by the way, drop the cultural elitism, too, because that, that's the other aspect of it. It's platitude, cliche, Trump bad, and like cultural elitism, looking down at their nose at everybody. That also doesn't help. So anyway, um, Shoykot's 100% right. These people don't know what they're doing. The entire Democratic consulting class needs to be fired. Bring back the old school, like, labor Democrats, union Democrats, people who know how to kitchen table all these issues, because... What's going on right now is unsustainable, and it looks like Democrats will get absolutely clonked in 2022 at this rate. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to go after Nancy Pelosi for sure. And it is going to be um, – I don't want to get too worked up, but I might get too worked up because what she did is – unacceptable, but I also think it's what she wanted to do, believe it or not. So anyway, stay right there, guys. We'll be right back with that and much more. Happy to be back on air. I'll talk to you soon.
We are back, baby. We are back. We are back. All right. Let's continue. Nancy Pelosi is um, unfortunately in the show. And here we go. So Nancy Pelosi is signaling interest in accepting a bipartisan $908 billion bill to deal with the COVID economic fallout. Take a look at what she said in a press conference. Perhaps you missed what I said earlier. Joe Biden committed to ending and crushing the virus and having a Build a Better America initiative, Big Back Better, a vaccine answer to our prayers, an answer to our prayers of 95% effectiveness in terms of Pfizer and Moderna, and there may be others uh, coming forward. That makes, that is a total game changer, a new president and a vaccine. So there's nothing to, these are different, what, what was then before was not more of this. This is, has simplicity. It's what we've had in our bills. It's for a shorter period of time, but that's okay now because we have a new president, a president who recognizes that we need to depend on science to stop the virus, a president who understands that America's working families need to have money in their pockets in a way that takes them into the future without any of the contractions of any of the other bills uh, that the administration was associating itself with in the board. We feel very excited about the prospect that the, there's a bipartisan bill, because I told members I'm not bringing any more bills that are not bipartisan. We wanted to, to, to um, show what needs to be done in the interest of negotiation. They're negotiating. It's a good product. It's not everything we want. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't want the Republicans to think that we uh, that this is a dream come true. It is not, but it is a path forward. Yeah. Well, when the state doesn't accept half of the wealth months ago, he said, I'm not going to accept half the wealth. Let me tell you something. Don't, don't characterize what we did before as a mistake, as a preface to your question, if you want an answer. By the way, that guy didn't say it was a mistake. He didn't use those words. He said, he quoted Pelosi. Pelosi said, oh, we're not going to take half a loaf with the deal that was on the table before. And then now this deal, which he wants to accept, is a lot less. It's about a trillion dollars less. So, sorry that you said these things and you're on the record and that you're being accurately quoted to your face, but... You said it, and now he's holding you to your own standard. He said, back then you said, I don't want to take half a loaf. Now you're taking a half of a half of a loaf. That's a quarter. Why would you do such a thing? And her excuse is incredibly weak. She said, well, Biden won. Okay, what does that have to do with the extreme pain and hurt and anguish? That's already happened that's out there. That's already happened. That's happening right now. 
What does that have to do with that? It's got nothing to do with that. So how can you use that as an excuse? She says, Biden won, and we have a vaccine. That's an answer to our prayers. Yeah, but when, when's, when will the distribution be enough to get to 70 or 80% of the entire population of the United States of America? We got 330 million people in this country, at least. When are you going to get 70 to 80% of them vaccinated? What are we talking, a year? Right? Am I, maybe I'm being too kind. Maybe that's too short of a time frame. But she brings up those things as if they're relevant to the conversation. They're not relevant to the conversation. There's already incredible pain out there. And she uses that as an excuse to accept an objectively worse deal. So when she flips out and says, if you want to answer your question, don't characterize what we did as a mistake. You have to understand something, guys. She's lying. She's lying. Because she knows that the deal is way worse. It's a fact. The, the provisions of the deal prove it's worse. And it's significantly less. It's a fact that it's worse. So she flips out. But she's lying as she flips out. Like, she knows she's lying. She knows that this is a worse deal. She knows that. Now, here's my, where I differ from other people, because others might say, oh, she messed up. This was like a bad tactical move. But see, I told you guys at the time, and I took heat for this too, by the way. There were people who were arguing with me over this. But you can go back and watch the segment. What I said at the time is, the deal that was on the table, by the way, was good. And that's why Ro Khanna was like, are you insane? Take the deal! The deal's great. The deal's better than we're ever going to get. She didn't take that deal. And I said, the reason why she's not taking it is because she fears if I take this deal and if it gets implemented, it's close enough to the election where maybe some of the positive effects of the deal are going to take hold before the election. And so if people start getting checks with Trump's name on it, you know, before the election, that might hurt Biden in the election, and that might help Trump in the election. So in other words, she made a political decision that I don't want to hurt, I don't want to hurt Biden, and I don't want to help the president. So I will, I will pretend like I'm holding out for more. But in reality, she just doesn't want any deal. She didn't want any deal at that point in time, because any deal would have meant maybe there's a small chance that this is going to help Trump and he could win re-election. That was her thought process. Now, by the way, was she correct in that front? I don't think so. I think if you did the deal, it probably was a little too late and the effects of it would have been felt like after the election. And so whatever was going to happen in the election was going to happen. It wasn't helping Trump or hurting Trump. Um, But I told you, I think she made a political calculation and she's like, I will accept the extreme pain that's out there if it means definitely getting Biden elected. And now Biden's elected, and now what's she doing? And I th- honestly, I think this proves that I was correct in my analysis. She's like, yeah, I'll take the worst deal. So now we know for sure she wasn't holding out for a better deal. Of course not. Because now she's taking the worst deal. So I was right. I was right about it. It was a total political calculation on her part. By the way, what she should have done, and this would have helped in the realm of politics further, is the original deal on the table. If I was her, first of all, again, on the merits, that deal was not bad, and that's why Ro Khanna was out there saying, are you insane? Take the deal. If I was Pelosi, I would have taken the deal, because you know what would have happened, guys? Mitch McConnell was going to block it anyway in the Senate. He was trying to do like a, like a $500 billion deal, which is ridiculous, and this, you know, the other one was like, what, around $2 trillion, something like that, one point something. So 
if Pelosi were to accept the deal, then McConnell blocks it, then you're right back to square one of like, the Republicans are the problem. And you can make that point and you'd be correct because it would be McConnell who's the problem. Because in that scenario, it would have been Trump for the deal, Mnuchin for the deal, Pelosi for the deal, and then McConnell blocks it. So um, what you're seeing here is not like, oh, it was a tactical mistake on her part. What you're seeing here is she got exactly what she wanted. They didn't get the deal before the election, so it didn't help Trump. So Biden won. And now she's like, yeah, I'll take the smaller deal. And she's totally flippant and dismissive about the impacts of that. She just tries to swat aside like, wait, you said you didn't want to take half a loaf. Now you're taking even less. She's like, yeah, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, that's basically her response. She's like, don't even, don't, don't you dare say I made a mistake. Because really, in her mind, she didn't. She thinks, no, I wanted no deal. And I got no deal. Now I want some deal because Biden's president or going to be president. So in this new deal, by the way, um, there's some more business aid. There's more PPP. There's some state and local money. And there's unemployment benefits at a lower number, $300 this time, $300. Um, and then to me, the biggest things where I would 1 million percent vote against this deal is I would have voted for the other one, to be clear. The one that Pelosi and McConnell rejected previously, I definitely would have voted for that deal because it was just flat out a good deal. It was a good deal. And you definitely weren't going to get better than that deal, right? So I would have taken that deal. This one I would vote against. And the two main reasons, giant liability shield for corporations so that they can't get sued over COVID-related stuff. It's the biggest giveaway you could ever imagine to corporate America in that sense. And it screws over regular people. So the liability shield is in there. And then the most important thing is there's no stimulus checks. There's no stimulus checks in this deal. How are you going to do a stimulus deal with no stimulus? But that's the thing, guys. They keep telling you who they are. They keep telling you who they are. Here's who they are. They don't care about you. They don't fight for regular, average, working Americans. They don't care about working people. They don't care about people who've been laid off as a result of COVID and the economic downturn. The, literally the number one thing that this bill should be about, it's not even in the bill. There are no stimulus checks. There are no new stimulus checks. This is disgusting, man. A total abdication of their duties and their responsibilities. And she is as bad as it gets. She's horrendous. Pelosi is. You know what I would have done if I was in her shoes? And you have no idea the positive effects of doing such a thing, let me just say. What I would have done if I was in her shoes is, and I do it right now too, I mean there's no reason not to do it at any point, but you get together with your caucus and you say here's what we're going to do. We're going to, very simple bill, one page bill. Every single month people get a $1,200 check Every single month for the remainder of the pandemic, people get a $1,200 check. So we're doing basically universal basic income. We're doing a recurring stimulus program. That's, that's the only thing that's in the bill. The only thing that's in the bill. Put aside the PPP, put aside the business aid, put aside state and local money, put aside unemployment benefits, put aside, put aside liability shield, put aside every other thing you could think of. It's like a one-page or two-page bill, and it says, $1,200 every month for the remainder of the crisis. Then what you do is you get your entire caucus to vote for it. Is there, are there going to be enough votes to pass that? Of course. There, were, there was enough votes to pass the HEROES Act. So there's going to be enough votes to pass this. The HEROES Act was way more comprehensive, right? 
So, of course, there would be enough to pass this. So you pass this through the House. Then you do a giant media blitz. You get all of your members from the right-wing members um, of, like, you know, the, the third-way groups, the corporatists, to the squad, to yourself. You all go out there every day. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, the nightly news, new media outlets. You go everywhere. And you say, we just passed a bill, stimulus checks, $1,200 every month for the remainder of the crisis until the CDC declares it officially over. This is what we're doing. We just passed it. We want to help working Americans. That's all we care about. That's our main concern. This is the purpose of our job is this right here, especially at a time like right now where we have a pandemic and effectively an economic depression. We want to help you. We just helped you. We did it. It's the goddamn Republicans are blocking it every step of the way. Call Mitch McConnell. Call Mitch McConnell. Tell him he better let this come up for a vote. Tell him it better pass. Pressure everybody in the Senate. Call Donald Trump. Tell Donald Trump, my dude, we're trying to help working people. Are you with us or are you against us? You were for a bill, you know, about $2 trillion in stimulus, that it had stimulus checks. You were for the original stimulus checks. Are you for this one? Are you for this one? Very simple bill, very straightforward. All it does is help regular Americans. That's all it does. Are you for it or are you against it? You're for it? You want to say something to McConnell? You want to pressure McConnell? You want to push McConnell? What are you going to do? So here are the results of that, guys. This is what would happen. Either Mitch McConnell and the Republicans would feel so much pressure from the campaign of the Democrats to put as much pressure on them as possible and mobilize the American people against the Republicans. Either they feel that pressure so much that they have to vote for it. Now, you might say, well, Kyle, that's incredibly naive. Maybe that doesn't happen. Okay, well, then you you know what the other option is? You just waged a, a campaign for however long it takes. I don't care if it takes a week or eight months. People aren't going to forget this. And so you just made it so that the prospects for Democrats running in 2022, they're much more likely to win and do better in that election. Because people tend to remember, they wanted to help me, they wanted to screw me. They were on the record, they said it a million times, they were talking about it on all the media shows. I saw it with my own two eyes. They passed the bill. They passed the bill to give me $1,200 every month. I'm with them. That's how you win elections. So either you actually win on the policy and help the American people, or if you don't win on the policy, you did enough messaging and branding to gain people's trust, and then you win in the election. Politics is not rocket science. Guys, I'm not a genius. I'm an idiot. I'm a moron. I'm a guy on YouTube with a microphone. You think I'm some sort of strategic phenomenon? Savant? No. This is common sense. I I hate the term common sense, so I'm not going to use that. But this is pretty obvious, in my opinion, that this is how you'd handle it if you were smart strategically. But not only is she not smart strategically, it might not be that. See, it might not be that. It might be that she just doesn't want to give those $1,200 monthly checks. She doesn't want to do that because Nancy Pelosi is more concerned with serving her donors. And serving her donors would be something more along the lines of, let's do a liability shield, which she's in favor of. So... That's how you handle this. They're not handling it like this. This is, this is pathetic. This is a joke. This is disgusting. Everybody should be really, really pissed about this. They're not representing you. You know, there's, there's some faction of Twitter that's pro-Pelosi. And I'm like, how little do you know about politics? 
Is like your whole thing just like slay queen nonstop, even if you're terrible and hurting Americans? Is that your thing? Just, just slay queen, vapid identity nonstop? I don't know, but it's it's depressing, man. There's so much pain out there, and we need to address it. And they're not doing anything to address it substantively. The deals are getting worse and worse, and now they're looking like they're going to accept the worst deal. A, a stimulus deal with no stimulus check. Just a total slap in the face. Okay, next. Next, next, next. Here we go, baby. So there was some really good reporting that came out in the Washington Post, and it highlights what happened with some of the um, fallout from the government response to COVID. So take a look at this. This is tweeted by Heather Long. New, over half of the $522 billion in PPP small business loans went to 600 larger companies and chains. Trump administration claimed most loans went to small firms, but most of the money went to larger businesses, new data shows. And then you can see the chart there. You can see the chart there. Paycheck protection program, loan value totals by percentile. And so you see it says the top 1% of loans account for more than a quarter of all loan value. The top 1% of loans account for more than a quarter of all loan value. Then you see underneath it, the top 5% of loans account for more than half of all loan value. The top 1%, or excuse me, the top 5% of loans account for more than half of all loan value. So, in layman's terms, let me describe what this means. The original intent of um, the PPP small business loans, the original intent of it is in the title. We need to help small businesses because they're the ones who are being really impacted in a devastating way by COVID and the economic fallout. In practice, in reality, what happened was, of course, the lobbyists won out. So the lobbyists for bigger business successfully convinced politicians to stretch the definition of what a small business is, and they made it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we ended up in a place where, I'll read it again here, over half, more than 50% of the $522 billion in PPP small business loans went to 600 larger companies and chains. So really, the small business program mostly helped big business. And honestly, this should come as no surprise to you because your government is corrupt. But beyond that, we've been seeing other economic numbers come out over time. And it was either 60%, I'm not sure if it was 60% of small businesses or 60% of restaurants specifically that they're now going to be permanently closed. So what you see is a real move towards concentration of wealth and power at the top 
and among few corporations. You're going to see, basically, there will be more monopoly power as a result of COVID. Because what's going to happen? When you have the small businesses shut down, uh, either you just destroy communities and the communities are permanently destroyed, or people with the capital swoop in and buy buy up the area, buy up the businesses, and they continue to make money while regular people suffer. And you can imagine a situation where somebody who was a small business owner for decades, you know, they get put out of business and then it's bought by a big chain and then they have to go work for that big chain. Sort of like the Walmartification of middle America, where small mom and pop shops were replaced with Walmarts. And people who were making more money previously and had more independence and freedom and something to be proud of, then, you know, they ended up working for minimum wage and clocking in and out and having terrible bosses. I mean, this is the, the long-term effects of this stuff, man, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's basically taking every negative trend in American society and in political and economic life and exacerbating it. That's what we're seeing with COVID. And now we're just getting more of the specifics rolling in over time. But listen, there were very few of us who were speaking up at the time, like when the CARES Act was being passed, and we were saying, you, no, you can't do this, you can't do this. There are very few of us, but we're already proven correct because it was a, it was a shock doctrine scenario. It was Naomi Klein's idea of the shock doctrine. You take a tragedy and you exploit it for your pre-existing agenda. And the pre-existing agenda is always in this country more corporate control, more control among the top 1% and the elites. And that's what happened. And more and more evidence is rolling in over time and it will continue to roll in because this is the dynamic at play. I mean, when you have a multi-trillion dollar bailout and people only got one, one time, $1,200 stimulus check, it's like, where's, the mo- where's all the money going? Answer to the top corporations and quantitative easing for the market. The banks were getting a trillion dollars a day, a day. The Fed was going nuts. So there's always a complete socialization of the stock market and the American people, it's rugged individualism for you. You've got the crumbs of a one-time $1,200 check. Meanwhile, again, look at other countries, right? The, the way they responded is, we'll do the broad economic shutdowns, and then we do wage replacement schemes. We basically nationalize wages for a temporary period of time. And it varied from like 70% to 100% of your wages. We didn't do that. We shut down like 50% of the economy and then told people, you're on your own. Here's a one-time $1,200 payment. I hope that lasts you like a year. Really, really, really devastating. My heart goes out to everybody affected by this. People affected by the health aspect of this, because we're nearing 300,000 Americans dead. People who've had it, people who have long-term symptoms as a result of it, long-term consequences, people who've died from it. My heart goes out to them, and my heart goes out to everybody whose life was uprooted by... You know, just how bad this was, just how bad this is. The, the devastating impacts on the economy are now crystal clear. Okay, next. Let's talk about 
our buddy Ro Khanna, who got in some trouble recently. Rokana was attacked by some partisan Democrats for going on Fox News. So I want to show you the interview here. He spoke to Laura Ingram. The topic is about the military budget, the Pentagon, cutting funding, reducing funding to the Pentagon. So let's see what he had to say, and then we'll, I'll tell you what some of the backlash was. I mean, I was for the strikes in Afghanistan. If terrorists hit my right, country, right. we need to do that. But I supported President Trump in getting the troops out of uh, Afghanistan. I supported President Trump saying we don't need the troop presence in Germany. There is a consensus that we are spread out too far and that this is not in our national security. And what do you think about the potential DOD picks that have been floated in uh, for a uh, Biden administration. I mean, a, a lot of these folks doesn't look like, doesn't look like they're going to be anxious to pull more troops out of Afghanistan. Certainly, the generals don't seem to want to do that. Well, I've expressed concern about uh, Michelle Flournoy. Uh, let's see what she says. But she was for an escalation in Afghanistan. She was for uh, Iraq. She was for Syria. Uh, these policies have cost us trillions of dollars. China hasn't been in a war since 1979. We've been in 40 wars. Uh, if you view China as our biggest strategic competitor in the 21st century, then these policies aren't what's going to allow America to win uh, and compete. So. Uh, this is Matt Gates shares this view. There are people on the Armed Services Committee who share this view. This is really not partisan. It's about making sure America leads the 21st century. Uh, Congressman Khanna, I would love to have you back because I actually think there are a lot of issues where Republicans can work with uh, progressives, conservatives can work with progressives, and this is just one of the, I think, one of the more obvious issues given where this debate already seems to be going. So here's some of the backlash. There's a big account. This guy is a, a journalist at Vox, Aaron Rupar, and he said, I'm not sure why any Democrat would validate Laura Ingram's show by going on it for a friendly interview, but that's what Ro Khanna just did. And look at, if you, if you look at the screenshot he took, you can see that it says right there at the bottom of the screen, Dems and GOP must re-examine the Pentagon budget. So... The whole point of the, seg of the segment was war is bad. We've been waging these wars for a long time. There is no definition of victory. Why are we still there? We should get out. That was the point of him going on the show. Now, you could take issue with how he framed it. There were a few moments there where he said, oh, I agree with Trump on that. If your criticism is, well, Trump's actually not for that. He just pretends to be for that. So don't phrase it as you agree with Trump. That's misleading. That's a fair criticism. I would agree with that criticism. But that's not the criticism he's making. He's saying, why are you going on the show? He's going on the show because he wants to say, yes, ending war is a good thing. And it's not about Laura Ingram. It's about the millions of people watching Laura Ingram. And for them to continue to hear the idea repeated that these wars are bad and we should come home, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So um, Ro Khanna is, you know, he's kind of sensitive to criticism in a way that's unique for most politicians, I think. And so he responded to Aaron Rupar, and he said, please watch the interview. It's about cutting the defense budget and stopping endless wars. I stated my position clearly and consistently. 
If someone on Fox is willing to talk about cutting the defense budget, why not engage? But we have a philosophical difference. I look at heroes, Gandhi, King, Lincoln, Mandela, and see who they engaged with and how they built coalitions. I look at thinkers like Habermas and, and Rawls and still believe in the possibility of overlapping consensus. This is my conviction. So, you know, listen, he's making that case as clear as he possibly can. But what I found fascinating is that Aaron Rupar, the Vox guy who was criticizing Ro Khan for this, just recently he was giving Pete Buttigieg credit because Pete Buttigieg went on Fox News and some of the segments went viral because he was like kind of schooling them on certain issues. So he acknowledges that like, oh, well, it's okay for Pete to go on. And I think the way he weasels out of it is to say, well, Pete's like holding them accountable and arguing with them. So that's why that's good. But Roe wasn't arguing with them, so it's not good. Yeah, but here's the thing, Aaron. It's like if Pete Buttigieg was schooling the Fox News host, and then the Fox News host responded, actually, that's a good point. I agree. Then all of a sudden, would it be bad that Pete Buttigieg went on because he convinced somebody of the argument he was making? Would Aaron Rupar say that was bad? Of course not. He would say, oh, my God, look at this. He even got this right winger, to agree with the left position. Oh, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of Roe going on. So he actually gets Laura Ingram to agree with this anti-war message. And now that's a bad thing? Now that's a bad thing. How is that a bad thing? And I, to be fair, I don't know or care whether Laura Ingram came into the interview already believing the anti-war stuff or was convinced at some point recently. I don't care. Either way, it's irrelevant to me. But they're both correct on that issue. Now, the second Laura Ingram starts to run cover for Trump and act like he's actually anti-war, yeah, then I'll disagree with her too. And I'll say, no, you're, you're being duped. He's not, for, he's not anti-war. He's keeping the wars going. He just does the rhetoric and then he does nothing about it substantively. We're still withdrawing and keeping thousands of troops in the Middle East. That's not a withdrawal. So she starts misleading people about what Trump is doing. Of course, I'll criticize her. But to, to go on and talk about how war is bad, how could that be a bad thing in any context? And the idea of like, oh, you're legitimizing them. I never bought that because whether or not you want to acknowledge it, Fox News is legitimate. They're the number one so-called news network. For you to say you're legitimizing them, they're already legitimate. Not only are they in the game and in the ballpark, they're winning the game because they're number one in the ratings. So you could shove your head in the sand and act like, no, I will not legitimize them, but they're already legitimate, and so you have to deal with that. Now, here's the, the approach that makes sense in my opinion. Yeah, you go on. If they say something that you disagree with and you go along to get along, yes, you're being an idiot and perhaps you shouldn't go on the network. But if you go on, disagree with them when you disagree with them and make your case and agree with them when you agree with them and make your case. Guys, I got news for you. This isn't really a controversial position. This is the position that most sensible people have. Instead of this, this approach to politics of like warring tribes and factions and never building coalitions. And just to put this in perspective for you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just came out and said very clearly Oh, Josh Hawley is for stimulus checks. I'm for stimulus checks. Would I work with Josh Hawley on that? You bet your ass, because we agree on that. 
Now, does that mean that AOC is going to agree with Josh Hawley when Josh Hawley takes like a right-wing immigration position? No, because she didn't say, I agree with him on immigration and I'd like to work with him to restrict more on immigration. She didn't say that because she doesn't believe that. What she said is, on stimulus checks, we agree, and I'd work together with him. And guess what? Josh Hawley responded and said, yeah, I'd work with her on this because we agree on this. Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders used to work together all the time on war-related issues, on the drug war-related issues. They wanted to do criminal justice reform. They worked towards criminal justice reform. They want to legalize marijuana. Take yes for an answer. Take yes for an answer. Now, that doesn't mean, since we agree on this one thing, we're best buds and we agree on everything. No! It's we agree on this one thing. I'll fight you when I don't agree with you, and when I agree with you, I agree with you. If AOC can acknowledge that, and Ro Khanna can acknowledge that, how is it that some media dunces can't acknowledge that, and some people online can't acknowledge that? You're legitimizing fascists or whatever. If she has a show that has millions of viewers, it doesn't matter whether or not you want to acknowledge it, She's legitimate. So how do you deal with that? You talk to the audience, convert them to your worldview, and then all you could do is speak the truth as you see it at every moment. And if that means you go on Laura Ingram's show and you argue with her vociferously for 10 minutes, so be it. That means you go on and you agree that war is bad, so be it. I guess the reason why this keeps popping up in my mind is like, a very annoying issue is because it's one of those ones where like there's this sense of like self-righteousness among people who don't agree with Ro Khanna on this and it's like it actually is a really stupid position it's really dumb and it is actively anti-coalition building to get stuff done in the real world and to win in fact Ro Khanna and Tulsi Gabbard and and Ilhan Omar, like these are people who worked with Matt Gates, an idiot right-wing Republican, because Matt Gates just happens to be against, it's either the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan, and they had to stand up and fight against Liz Cheney and the hawkish Democrats. So people who disagree with you on the issue are forming coalitions, right? The, the hawkish neoconservative pro-war Democrats and Republicans are more than happy to work together, on an issue where they agree. So why would you not work together with the ones on the right? Oh, because they're bad on other issues. Yes, they're bad on other issues. Great. We're not talking about the other issues. <laughs> We're talking about this issue right now. Will we talk about the other issue? Yes, we'll argue. We're talking about this issue right now. So it's this weird sense of, like, self-righteousness that people have. Bad people are bad, Rokana. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're so fucking thoughtful. You're so brilliant. I think bad people are bad and Laura Ingram's bad. Oh, bro, you blew my mind, bro. If you're engaged in politics and it's not for specific policy issues, perhaps you shouldn't even be engaged in politics. If your whole reason for engaging in it is like, I need to find meaning among a tribe, go play sports instead. You know, because there's, there's like the, the tribe or team aspect of it is part and parcel of the game and is very be- beneficial. But in this, it's not about the tribe. It's not about the team. It's about materially improving people's lives and having a, a positive impact on this world. And sometimes that means with working with assholes. Duh. I have a principled stance against working with assholes. Then congratulations on just virtue signaling all day and never getting anything done ever for any reason whatsoever. So anyway, I think Rokan is obviously right. It's just so annoying that this kind of stuff is like still debatable. You know, like... 
coalition building is politics 101. And the weird thing is, the, the way these people think, even if we somehow manage to convince like 90% of the country to agree with us on all of our issues, they'd be like, no, you have to write off like 40% of those people and actively not work with them because they don't agree with you. They didn't agree with you on other stuff. Perhaps this is a bad example because I just said they agree, if we could get them to agree with us on everything. What I meant to say was, if you could get 90% of the country to agree with you on something specific, and then these people would chime in and say, no, no, you have to dismiss 40% of that 90% because that 40% has other really shitty views. Like, you literally just aren't taking yes for an answer. <laughs> like, that's what that is. And it's so, like, childlike, and it's like you're throwing a tantrum. And Anyway, bad people are bad, bro. They're so bad. Thank you for your insight, Aaron Rupar. We appreciate it. Oh, now we got Joe Biden's corruption in this Mitch. This one hurts. Joseph Robinette Biden is continuing to disappoint in some, some pretty stunning ways. Biden's inauguration will be mostly virtual, but he's still raising millions for it from corporations and wealthy donors. The presidential inauguration, inaugural committee will allow individual donations up to $500,000 and corporate donations up to $1 million. For what? So this is from David Dayen of the American Prospect. He says, Google is facing a lawsuit from the U.S. government with a Facebook lawsuit on the way. The departure of Ajit Pai as chair of the Federal Communications Commission could lead to the restoration of net neutrality protections, preventing Comcast and AT&T from charging to deliver content through its broadband pipes. Countless other corporations have business before the federal government, from hospitals to banks, from pharmaceutical manufacturers to insurance and real estate companies, and many more. All these corporations can now give up to $1 million directly to support the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in January. Presidential inaugural committees are unlike political campaigns in that they can take direct corporate contributions. The Biden committee announced on Monday as a 501c4 nonprofit allows corporate donations up to 1 million and donations from individuals up to 500,000. Moreover, we won't know the identities of these donors until 90 days after the inauguration. Okay, so get this, because this is really interesting. Biden and his team banned fossil fuel companies from donating. They banned fossil fuel companies from donating, which means Joe Biden is agreeing to the logic of that money being given to us is a corrupting influence. They're not donating because they like me personally. They're donating because they want favors in return. I don't want to give them favors in return. So I'm not accepting money from that industry because that's basically like pay-to-play corruption, right? They want something out of this. You can agree in principle 
that this is corruption, and that's why I'm not taking the money from them. But then when it comes to all the other corporations and all the other, other industries and all the other billionaires and wealthy individuals, you're like, yeah, we're going to accept it. You, you couldn't make more clear that you're okay with the corruption in some circumstances with some industries and just not with this one industry. Now, I should state for the record, it's not like Trump is holier than thou on this because Trump broke all records and raised 170, 107 excuse me, million dollars in 2017 for his inauguration. And then he actually did fewer events than previous presidents with the extra money, with the more money. So there's actually a lawsuit right now in Washington, D.C., um, because they're saying the Trump campaign misused the funds. They, obviously, they can't account for all the funds. Um, now, but here's the thing that breaks me. Like, this is the fact that's just, it makes you realize how far astray we've gone. Inaugural funding is generally put towards production of the gala balls, so like these parties that they have, um, crowd control, because at the inauguration, usually there's giant crowds, like the infrastructure to set it up, the infrastructure to set up this whole process, right? And also like things like porta potties on the National Mall, because there's obviously a lot of people there. This is what they're nominally raising money for when they raise the money. We're not going to get any of this stuff with Biden because of COVID. Like all like the gala balls and stuff, they're not happening this year because of COVID. So he's going to raise tens of millions, probably over 100 million like Trump, going to raise over 100 million from corporations and wealthy donors for the inauguration. And he doesn't even have anything to spend it on. So it's not even like he can nominally put it towards something else. This is obscene, guys. This is obscene. If you're not really going to have a traditional inauguration, why are you raising money like it's a traditional inauguration? And you already admitted it's, admitted it's corrupting, which is why you said no to the fossil fuel money. But you're saying yes to all these other industries? I mean, listen, this is as corrupt as it gets. There's not even like, it's like they're not even pretending that it's on the up and up. Because they're going to take the money, and they admit they have nothing to spend it on, so where the hell is the money going to go? And how is it going to influence them? going to influence him in the same way he knows the fossil fuel money would influence him. He's going to listen to Big Pharma, for example. He's going to listen to the military-industrial complex. He's going to listen to whatever industries and billionaires happen to give him funds. That's what's going to happen. He's an old-school politician. It reminds me of that video from when he was new to politics that we played on this show a number of times. Um, he basically admitted, like, yeah, I went to the big donors to try to raise money, and they said, son, come back when you're 40. But the way he phrased it was, I was willing to whore myself. He either said whore myself or prostitute myself. I was willing to prostitute myself to the donors, but they said come back when you're 40. He was like bragging, proud that he wanted to partake in the corruption. And now here he is. By the way, he did go back when he was 40. And they gave him a lot of money. And then here we are now. It's old school Biden. Same stuff. Pay to play. Go along to get along. Oh, I'll take a moral stand on one industry, one industry, fossil fuel. Will he when it comes to Wall Street? No. Will he when it comes to the military industrial complex? No. 
Only when it comes to health insurance companies or big pharma. No. And they don't even have anything to spend it on. Make the new boss same as the old boss. Incredibly corrupt. And they will make decisions that benefit the people who are giving him the money, for sure. Those are the first concern. Those are the first people in mind when he makes decisions. Won't be the American people. It'll be the donors. He's already poised to be just as corporatist as we said he was going to be. So how's that whole push him left thing going? Okay. All right, now I'm going to tell you about one of Biden's um, advisors. Let me just chug some big seltzer before I continue, because I would describe myself as parched at the moment. Ida Chavez of The Intercept did some great work here. Um, Take a look at a new member of Biden's circle, or a new old member of Biden's circle. Longtime Biden advisor lobbied on behalf of Trump's corporate tax cut. Cynthia Hogan worked as a top lobbyist for Apple and led the NFL's lobbying division during a high-profile domestic violence scandal. She also helped craft the crime bill, Three strikes laws, she played a, a, a role in that, um, and she's a longtime D.C. corporate insider, clearly. Now, by the way, this is like you wonder where this culture of corporatism and neoliberalism comes from. And you have to understand, it's everybody in that Democratic consultant world, everybody. There's the revolving door of politics. So, you know, you go into democratic politics and then, you know, you leave and you get paid for a while. You go to Wall Street, you know, you go to work for some financial company that you really get paid. And then eventually you go back to Washington, D.C. and you play a role there. And so they don't think like they genuinely don't think that this is corrupt. They think like, what do you mean? This is just how it is. This is how it works. We have people who go back and forth from the government world to the corporate world and the government world and the corporate world. And it's just, they, they can't conceive of another way of doing it. Now I'm of course here to tell you there are, of course there are other ways to do it. You can hire academics for your administration. You can hire economists for your administration. You can hire labor leaders for your administration or activists for your administration. There's a bunch of different kinds of people, some people who are genuinely in this for community service and well-being of others and, and for academic and intellectual thought, philosophical thought. Like there are all sorts of people that exist in this world that are doing it for the right reasons. But in, in third-way politics, you know, the Bill Clinton model of the Democratic Party took hold, this is everybody in those environments. They're all like career ladder climbers They don't care much for political thought or philosophy or improving everybody's lives. It's just the old school corporate world of like, I want to climb the ladder and I I want to make a name for myself and I want to be phenomenally wealthy. 
And so that's where you get a situation where the, a top Democratic aide lobbied for the signature Republican policy proposal that became law. This was the Bush tax cuts on steroids. The Trump tax cuts, 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. That bill incentivized outsourcing, even as Trump pretended like he's against outsourcing. It was a giant cut in the corporate tax rate. And a, a Biden advisor was lobbying for it. One of the other things she did is she worked with the NFL when they had the domestic violence scandal when it came to Ray Rice. And um, she argued for a non-zero tolerance policy on domestic violence. So her case, you shouldn't be fired in a situation where there's domestic violence. This is the same person. She was also involved in, in writing the Violence Against Women Act. And then she went to go work for the NFL to say a little bit of domestic violence is acceptable. We shouldn't have a a zero-tolerance policy. Work for Apple to try to get those corporate tax cuts. This is who she is. This is who everybody's surrounding Biden. I mean, Neera Tandon, do we even need to get into that? I mean, her laundry list of terrible things that she's done and said. And I mean, she punched Fa Shakir when Fa Shakir dared to ask Hillary Clinton about her vote for the Iraq war. She punched him. This is a, a person who casually said that we should steal Libya's oil to help pay down our deficit. These are the people that Joe Biden is surrounding himself with. People who are on the payroll, by the way, not just of U.S. corporations, but also foreign interests like Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, by the way, it's not that the Republicans are holier than thou. Of course they're not. But why is it that the Democratic Party, uh, a main aide in the Democratic Party for the Democratic president, was an advocate for the signature right-wing proposal? These are the kinds of people you want to hire? And the answer is yes. They don't, they don't even view it as a possibility to hire academics or economists or labor leaders or activists, real people with real ideologies. No, they, they, in their mind, corporatism is the default setting. And if you disagree with it, you're just naive. They think you just don't know how the world works. Like, this is how it works. You go to Washington, you go to work in the private sector, you get paid, and then you go back to Washington and rinse and repeat. That's how it works. And a lot of smug people think, man, these are serious people. Experience. <laughs> yeah, serious experience, like passing Donald Trump's signature accomplishment and lobbying for it. <laughs> this is evil stuff, man. This is your Democratic Party. We don't have a Democratic Party. We have a Republican Party and a Republican light party. A Republican Party and a diet Republican Party. These are the kinds of people who will be in the room as Joe Biden is making decisions. People who are for colossal tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations. It's almost beyond parody, isn't it? Okay. Now we're going to talk about... um, Marijuana decriminalization. History. Ooh, wrong graphic, bitch. Oh, I like this graphic now. The uh, weed flag is behind me. History has officially been made. House approves federal marijuana decriminalization in historic vote. Legislation almost certainly won't pass the Senate, but it marks the latest sign that opposition to legalization around the country is diminishing. 
So the chamber approved the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, the acronym is MORE, the MORE Act, by a vote of 228 to 164. Passed pretty comfortably. It was largely along party lines. There were five Republicans who joined the Democrats in voting for this. Um, And I believe there were five or six Democrats who um, joined the Republicans voting against it. The bill removes marijuana from the federal controlled substances list. And if it's passed into law, it would automatically make recreational marijuana legal nationwide. Now, individual states would have to still legalize it on their own, but this decriminalizes it, basically. It decriminalizes it, as opposed to the legalization at the federal level, because it doesn't set up it doesn't set up a regulatory framework to legally sell it at the federal level. It still leaves it up to the states to create their own frameworks uh, in terms of legalization in the states. Decriminalization is different from legalization. This is a decriminalization bill. And the act would also expunge the criminal records of those with certain marijuana convictions and create funding and grants for communities that were disproportionately affected by the enforcement of marijuana criminalization, which just means that like the communities, the communities of color that were more impacted by this get first dibs, basically, is what that means. So... That's historic. It is historic. Now, don't get it twisted. This was symbolic because they passed it knowing it was going to die in the Senate. It's not like they passed it and they thought there was any chance of it actually getting into law. Uh, It's going to be blocked in the Senate by Mitch McConnell and then Donald Trump. Even if it got to Trump's desk, I don't think he would necessarily sign it. He should, but I don't think he would. Again, McConnell's probably not even going to let it up for a vote. Um, But it is historic in the sense that it passed the House of Representatives. It actually passed. It passed. So in a situation where the Democrats win the Senate, then you have the votes, then they could vote on it. I think it would pass. If the Democrats had 51, I think it would pass. Because, you know, you might lose like Manchin maybe, but you gain Rand Paul, right? So it would pass. And then, but then the question is, would Biden sign it? Biden recently has hinted, more in the direction of softening on this issue, but he was an old school drug warrior. So I don't know if he'd sign it, to be honest with you. But, but now we, we've done something we've never done previously, and that matters. And listen, I think the reason why the House passed it and the reason why we've come this far is because in every single election now, we have direct ballot initiatives in some states where the question is, should we legalize marijuana? Some states are further behind and they're, they vote on like medical marijuana, for example. But in a number of states, every single election now, there's votes on marijuana and it wins almost every single time. I mean, there are conservative states that are voting to legalize recreational marijuana. So the consensus is now so overwhelming. And we're actually seeing some legislative gains on this front in a way that leads to real world impacts. And it almost feels like the snowball effect and there's no looking back. And the lobby for marijuana is gradually becoming more and more powerful than the lobbies against marijuana. You know, like you might have people in the DEA lobbying against marijuana, but if you, if it becomes a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry. And also, by the way, you might say, Hey, how dare they focus on this during COVID? This is an industry that has promised to create so many jobs and create so much wealth. You know, if you really legalize it at the federal level and have a regulatory framework, are you kidding me? Overnight, you're creating this gigantic industry with so many jobs being created. And there are a lot of giant economic upsides. And that's exactly what we need at a time like right now. 
So, I, like, I get it. I would first and foremost do stimulus checks and do UBI for people. That's what they need right this second. But this is definitely something that does have a positive impact on the economy, which is desperately needed right now. So this, I wouldn't put this off forever. Of course I would, you know, have a vote like this. Um, so it's great that the House passed it. It's terrible that the Senate won't. Who knows what Biden would do, even in the situation where the, the Senate were to pass it as well. But we're getting somewhere, man. There's real movement on these issues now. First and foremost, credit goes to the activists and the states for being the laboratories of democracy and moving in a pro-weed direction. But, I mean, we're really starting to, to get somewhere now, and it's kind of exciting because I do feel like you guys know this, right, that, like, on, on economic issues, oftentimes the fights are so much harder. Like, I'm talking about core economic issues core economic issues. So whether it's union stuff or Medicare for all or a living wage, like it's so hard to win on that stuff because corporations are so involved and invested on the wrong side of these issues. But you'll notice we always see more movement on social issues. And, and granted, the change comes in different ways. So like with gay rights, it came from the Supreme Court, for example. But like you always get the sense there's more give on social issues. And marijuana, even though it's also an economic issue, it's definitely a social, social issue and a personal freedom issue as well. And I feel like that's where we get most of our gains, and this is one where we're going to see more gains. So listen, even though we perpetually get shafted on so many of the pure economic issues, this is one of those that's like, in the long run, I see no way in which we don't win. And the House passing a marijuana decriminalization bill, that's nothing to scoff at. Even though it's not going anywhere, people just got to keep the pressure on keep having these votes in the respective states. And eventually we could get to a place where like it's legal in all the states. And then it's almost like the government's in the position, federal government is in a position where it's like, we really can't put that genie back in the bottle. So you kind of force their hand in a way. And that might be a little bit what's happening with this. We may have forced their hand in a way. So um, good. Let's keep moving in this direction. All right, now we are going to go to a fight. We had a fight, baby. We had a fight. CNBC. I kind of love this clip. CNBC host Aaron Sorkin got into a screaming match with Rick Santelli. Maybe I should say that the opposite way. It was more Rick Santelli screaming at Aaron Sorkin, but, you know, it got heated either way. They, were, they don't like each other, it looks like, and they went back and forth aggressively. So, of course, the topic is COVID and the lockdowns. Let's take a look. Rick, I, I just wanted to, to, to just highlight something that the, the background of this whole discussion comes with uh, what we're seeing in terms of COVID cases. Uh, and we're seeing, um, you know, maybe stimulus, but we're seeing calls for, uh, for, for not necessarily closing things down, but certainly there are some calls uh, to, to closing down, except for the politicians themselves. But, but, but for their constituents, they're talking about, you know, they need to be uh, much more careful. We're, we're, we're hearing, right? Yes. No, I, believe me. I, I believe in careful. And when I point out governors cheating, it's not for the hypocrisy which exists. It's the fact that I think many of these governors are intelligent people, and they love their families, which they've taken out in the restaurants. Therefore, there is actually and should be an ongoing debate as to 
you know, why a, a parking lot for a big box store like by my house is jam-packed. Not one parking spot open. Why are those people any safer than a restaurant with plexiglass? I, I, I just don't get it. And I think there's a million of these questions that could be asked, and I think it's really sad that when we look at the service sector and all the discussions we've had about job losses, that that particular dynamic isn't studied more, isn't worked more. We don't put more people in a room and try to figure out ways so that these service sector employees and employers could all come back in a safer way. You can't tell me that shutting down, which is the easiest answer, is necessarily the only answer. Rick, I just, I, I just as, a, as, a, as a public health and public service announcement uh, for the audience, the difference wait, between wait, a big box retailer. Who is this? Hold on. The difference between <coughs> the, oh, the difference. The difference between a big box retailer. Hold on. The difference between a big box retailer and a restaurant, or frankly, even a, a church, are so different. It's unbelievable. I disagree. You're wearing you a mask. You can have your thoughts and I can you're have mine. It's science. I'm sorry. It's science. If it's you're wearing not a mask, science. it's a different story. 500 people in a Lowe's aren't any safer than 150 people in a restaurant that holds 600. I don't believe it. Sorry. Don't believe okay. it. And I you're, live in an area not. where there's a lot of restaurants that have fought back and they don't have any problems. And they're open. Okay. You don't have to believe it. But let me just say this. You're doing a I disservice to the viewer because the viewers need to you understand are doing this. A disservice we, we are to the viewer. You are. You are. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If, 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 I, I would like to keep our viewers as healthy as humanly possible. The idea of packing people yeah. in the restaurant. I think our viewers are smart enough to make part of those decisions on their own. I don't things. think that I'm much smarter than all the viewers like some people do. Can I get in here, please, and get back to the how's doctor that, for us? How's that working out for you, Rick? How's it all working out for you? I mean, look at the numbers, Rick. It's working I, out fine. I, I, working I, I, out think, fine. I think the numbers, Rick, the lie. Rick, Rick, the numbers show that I the understand idea of it's it a rip horrible not thing, all that well. and people are getting sick and dying. Not I understand it. I just think I, the I way think, we deal with it isn't the rest of the show talking about this, there would be no agreement, so let's move on. Yeah, that was intense. So there's a lot to say about this. I mean, this is the, these are the debates that are going to go on ad infinitum now because, like I said, we're kind of doing the worst of all worlds in terms of how we're responding. And so these debates are inevitable. So the point that Rick Santelli's making, and by the way, he is probably the most annoying man on the planet um, with how obnoxious he is. He's saying, well, it makes no sense that big businesses are, like, favored and they get loopholes, and then small businesses are getting crushed. He's saying, like, I feel for the small businesses. And then Aaron Sorkin jumps in and says, well, hold on now. But there are differences between big, bo big box retailers, a small restaurant, and, like, a church. Like, there are nuanced differences, and some, some businesses it's more dangerous to keep open, and others it's not. I mean, just to give one example, like, yeah, if you're sitting outside and eating – that's a lot safer than sitting inside and eating. So a restaurant that has the ability to have people eat outside, it could make sense to keep that open, but a restaurant where you have to eat inside, you don't have the ability to eat outside, that it actually makes sense to close. So, like, are there differences? And, and is it a nuanced thing? Of course there is. And that's why we make these distinct distinctions between, you know, necessary businesses and ones that are not necessary. And, sure, there's, like, a gray area as to what is necessary and what's not, but we all agree that there are different categorizations of things that it's 
relatively safe to stay open and things that it's not safe at all to keep open. Bars, for example, are the worst example. Like if you're indoor bar, it's like, woof, you're going to spread COVID in there like nobody's business, especially at a time like right now with these numbers. So like, are there differences? Yes. The point Rick Santelli is making is more, I, I get what he's saying because he's trying to say from a principled perspective, you are giving favorable treatment to the bigger businesses over like the smaller businesses. And that's unfair to the smaller businesses, especially because they can't weather the storm. And so, yeah, the principle of like, should we open or should we close? It's the same, whether it's a small business or a big business, you're still having the conversation of should we open or close and to give them special treatment or favoritism and then have the veneer of like, oh, it's only about health and safety. Well, no, in the case of with our government, no, there are plenty of you know, exemptions and loopholes because there's corruption and because the big businesses have like paid for those loopholes. And I mean, just look at the response with the CARES Act. Look at who's getting the PPP money. It's mostly big businesses, you know, the giant corporate bailouts. And then they turn around and fire their workers anyway. Yes, there's favoritism. Yes, there's corruption. Yes, the wealthy are making out like bandits and regular people are getting absolutely crushed. Now, so that, I mean, listen, what I described to this point that's all the case. But then the question becomes, well, what do we actually do about it? And I would like to hear what both of them have to say, because I'm curious what they think the solutions are. Again, my guess is a guy like Rick Santelli leans on the side of like, just keep everything open. It's freedom. We know it's a disastrous situation, but we're compounding it and making it worse for people economically. It's better to have the health problem, but have the economy open than have the health problem and have stuff closed. Like if you're going to have the health problem either way, why not have the health problem, but also keep everything open? You know what I mean? I think that's his argument. But I mean, the childish aspect of that one is, well, then you're doing like no virus mitigation stuff. And of course you need to, which is why the responsible conservative position is more like, okay, keep most stuff open, some closures, because you can't avoid some closures, but you have to mandate universal masks. You just have to do it. You have to do that, and you have to mandate social distancing. You have to have very basic rules because that actually, it's been proven. There's studies on this. You can save hundreds of thousands of lives in the case of the U.S. just with that alone. So that would be the responsible conservative position. I don't know if he's being responsible because I didn't hear him say anything about masks, really. But I want to straw man him. Maybe he does believe that, and he just didn't say it, or I didn't hear it, whatever. But that would be the more conservative, um, the responsible conservative position. And then you have um, Aaron Sorkin and... You know, what I would say to him is, okay, so he seems to be more in favor of shutdowns or at the very least targeted shutdowns, right? Like he's trying to make the distinction between it's different. All these things are different and you have to look at them on a case-by-case basis. All these different places where you go are different. Is the church the same as the bar? Is the bar the same as, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but yeah, what I would say to him is if you're going to advocate for the shutdowns, you, there is no way around it. You have to either advocate for wage replacement so temporary nationalization of wages where the government pays anywhere from 70% to 100% of your wages, you have to advocate for that. Um, or you have to advocate for some form of universal basic income and recurring stimulus payment. It's one or the other. If you shut down, you have to pay people. You have to. You can't shut down and then not give them relief because then eventually the bills come due and they haven't worked because you said they can't work. So. You have to. But again, they didn't really touch that part of it. See, that's why they're just kind of screaming over each other there, and which is probably why it went viral, because they're just heated and yelling like a bunch of idiots. But like, you got to get to the core of it. And my guess is at the core of it, there's somewhere in the ballpark of that 
conservative position and that leftist position and like or liberal position. And yeah, I mean, honestly, both of those things are solutions and are better than what we're doing now. But we're in the worst of both worlds. We're doing the economic shutdowns, so limiting economic freedom, but it's there's such half measures that it's still not really mitigating the spread of the virus. So it's like you get the downsides of the giant explosion of the virus, but then half measure shutdowns, which don't actually curtail it. <laughs> so you get the economic issues and you get the health issues. It's just worst of all worlds. And I feel like I don't know what their actual positions are if you let them explain it in detail, but my guess is they'd both be for some degree of some sort of half measure that would still be a mess like, like we're currently witnessing. So it's really tough watching all this stuff because you can see how our government is basically just totally inadequate and they have no idea what they're doing. And then you see like Australia hasn't had a, a case in such a long time now, and they're out there having festivals and concerts and partying, and it's just like, wow, are we really that pathetic? The answer is yes. Final story of the day. I saved the funny one for the last one. Business Insider has a banger of a story here. No pun intended by using the word bang. Anti-gay Hungarian politician has resigned. Hold on one sec. I fucked this up. My graphic is fucked up. I got to get the right one. Okay, I got to start that over. My bad. Business Insider has an amazing story here. This is a classic. An anti-gay Hungarian politician has resigned after being caught by the police fleeing a 25-man orgy through a window. An ally of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban resigned from the European Parliament after attending what was described as a 25-man orgy in Brussels. Joseph Sager quit as an MEP on Sunday and later said he was present at a private party. The police found Sager and 24 other naked men at the gathering, including diplomats, local reports said. Zager played a key role in the Orban government's crackdown on LGBTQ rights in Hungary. There's so much to say about this. First of all, the nerve of attending a 25-person orgy during a pandemic. I mean, that's like next-level irresponsible. 25-person orgy during a deadly pandemic? God damn, these must be some horny dudes. I mean, you got to be as horny as possible to do one of those things, right? I mean, what the hell? But listen, I mean, keep it real. This is a recurring story that we've seen time and time again, where you have like the most vitriolic, vehement, anti-gay politicians, as a general rule, if they seem like over-invested in that, it's because they're struggling with those feelings. Usually it's paired with a sort of like hardcore religious upbringing where you're taught that that's morally wrong and you internalize it. So you're taught it's morally wrong, you internalize it. And then the process is you actually get angry and resentful and almost jealous that there are gay people who are comfortable with being gay 
and who live that life openly, proudly. You see that and there's a level of resentment because in your mind you think like that could be me and I want to do that, but it's morally wrong. So I'm over here fighting off my urges nonstop and it's tough and that makes me angry and resentful. And so that manifests as like being vehemently anti-gay and talking about it and pointing it out. And, you know, see, these guys tend to think technically it's a choice and I'm choosing to do the thing that I don't want to do, which is not engage in that stuff. And that makes me angry. And so you actually could see the psychological process. You see that that makes sense. The people who are like, it's a thou doth protest too much type situation. And here you go. That's this guy right here. That's this guy right here. And, like, also there's the aspect of, like, the taboo nature of it. He was definitely taught when he was younger that it's taboo and it's wrong and he can't do it. And then maybe the thing that fed into it is the taboo nature. You know what I mean? That's something that he thinks makes it hotter. Because as a general rule, I think there is a thing to that with people in general. And it's not just on gay issues, any sort of sexual issue. It's like if you make it more taboo, you're increasing the mystique of it. And so that's a way to almost encourage people in a sense in certain directions oh definitely don't do that that's off the table that's too far don't that's really taboo be like, don't do what tell me about it in detail <laughs> like this is what happens because people are people and we're complex so it's just like i wonder what would happen if people were never taught that that stuff is wrong if you're taught from the beginning, that you could be whoever you want to be. And there's no, nothing immoral or unethical about liking somebody of the same sex. I wonder if, I don't think people would ever start hating gay people if they're taught from when they're younger that it's fine to be like that. I do think there has to be a level of indoctrination from when you're a kid. Obviously, this guy had it. Obviously, he was, at some point, he was fighting the, the urges, but, oh, he gave in to those urges real good. To be at a 25-man orgy, I mean, that's as much giving in as you possibly can. And then the question I would have for him is like, so how do you feel after? Does the old teaching that it's wrong pop up in your mind from time to time? And are you like self-critical as a result of it? Are you like, God damn it, what did I do that? Or is it like total double life, total lie, including to yourself? Do you act like you never did it? Or is he, after he does it, is he like, that's the last time? And then, like, a week later, he's like, let's have another 25-man orgy. I don't know. I don't know. But this is definitely, you know, a psychological thing that we've seen time and time again with the most vehement anti-gay people oftentimes end up being gay themselves. They've even studied this. I think we, we've talked about it on this show a number of times. There's a study where they attach, like, sensors to their junk, and then if somebody who is kind of outwardly anti-gay, you showed them a picture of gay porn, and they started getting hard. So, yeah, no reason to hate, ladies and gentlemen, no reason to hate. We're all equal, you know, to love whoever you want to love. There's, there's really no moral angle to that. I mean, obviously, listen, not children, because <laughs> they're, they're literally not old enough to be in that realm of sexuality. They haven't developed yet. So there is something wrong about with children and taking away their innocence, and by definition, there can't be consent there. But children aside, you love whoever the hell you want to love. That's it. You know, nothing wrong with it. Um, it'd be a lot more respectable if Homeboy was just open from the beginning. Like, yeah, I'm gay, and I like these 25-man uh, orgies. I'm a fan of it. 
there is something respectable about just wear just wear it on your sleeve. Yeah, that's what I do. I like it. You know, so. Jeez, man, is it is this like a? Are there like cabals of wealthy political figures that have these orgies all the time? Like, are you liable to stumble upon an orgy with like Dick Durbin and Mitch McConnell one day? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm asking. Like, is that is this? God, people are so like. I would never. Maybe I'm a square. Maybe I'm a loser. But I would never in a million year. Twenty five person orgy. What the? It's almost sensory overload too. Too much is going on. You know, you're like, Jesus Christ, I'm getting bombarded in every direction. This is crazy. Man, they got nerve, huh? They got balls, no pun intended. Um, maybe there is some secret thing going on among elites where they all, like, fuck each other nonstop. But whatever it is, stop hating gay people and everything would be hunky-dory. All right, guys, we're done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a good rest of the day. Peace.